Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone This is Fran Lewis from hot Westchester It's 90 degrees out there And this is going to really be great. We have the author of Target Acquired here, Don Bentley. And this book is so over the top, I don't know why you didn't order it. It's coming out tomorrow. But first, a special shout-out to the people of Jewish Monuments for making my Sunday so much better. Thank you for fixing my aunt's grave, which happened to collapse during her unveiling, and the cemetery didn't really care. So I appreciate the help of Yuda. Joseph and Moshe. And if you need a monument, seriously, 732-901-3030. They are the best, and they went out of their way, plus the center, to make sure that this was taken care of. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and good morning, and how are you? This is going to be fun, trust me. Good morning, Fran. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here. And um, the book is coming out tomorrow. And my review was posted this morning at about 4 o'clock. Yes. <laughs> it's on just for nice you. A nice early start. And, of course, it's positive. Um, to be honest, if a book doesn't get three and a half, four stars, I don't review it ever. So nice. summarize the plot. And what would you like to share about the plot that we won't give away anything? And there are people listening. Hi, everybody. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I, I think um, – so from my from my perspective, obviously this is my first book in the in the um, Tom Clancy universe, and certainly my first book in the Jack Ryan Jr. thread for it. And so, I really the the folks that had come before me and wrote it, like Mark uh, Madden, who was right before me, and and Mark Greeny, and all these folks had did such a tremendous job. And so when you're when you're sitting down to write the book for the first time and thinking what the plot looks like and what what can you do and what can you bring to the series that's a little bit different or mm-hmm. that honors what everybody else has done before but it's still, you know, it's still a, a new take on it. And, and so what I tried to do was to neck down the book and focus almost exclusively on Jack Ryan Jr. and, and try and both for my benefit to kind of climb into his head so I could understand him a little better and then also, hopefully, for the book perspective, to give a tighter book just around him. And so from a plot perspective, it really centers just around Jack Ryan Jr. It's set and it starts in Israel, which is one of my favorite countries in the world, in Tel Aviv, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. And Jack gets interrupted as he's doing an asset validation exercise by um, a, a knife man who's trying to kill this young woman mm-hmm. in front of her child, and, and he stops um, that assault from happening, and then it spirals into something with global stakes where he's, he's racing against time to try and stop the apocalypse. So 
like all Tom Clancy books, it's very small stakes, uh, very small story. No, I'm kidding. Hopefully it's, it's something that readers latch on to and, and really enjoy. Well, the book is 432 pages to be exact. <laughs> and and we, we had a problem with the post office delivering it. I was having a conversation. Oh, no. And they, they, I think they had to send a second one. I don't know where the first one wound up, but there's somebody in my building that definitely is reading it. And the minute they see something from a publishing company, it just it disappears. So I just I sat down and read it in one day, which is real. Oh, wow. it's not real for me. Yeah, I just sat down and read it, and I'm saying, Jack Ryan, he's getting me nervous because he's really getting into dangerous situations. And I said, Well, then. The, the other thing that, that I appreciated is the fact that you have the character list, but you didn't mm-hmm. do what the other authors did and have three million characters. <laughs> I was able to follow it, and I'm going like, oh, there's only these many, not five, <laughs> five pages of characters. That drives me crazy. So yeah. how did you create the prologue and add those new characters? By the way, I like those two new characters. Oh, thank you. Um, so... I um, have been fortunate enough that I have kind of an interesting background, and then I was an Apache um, Army helicopter pilot for ten years, and oh, I was nice. an FBI special. Yeah, I w- and then I was an FBI special agent and SWAT guy for a while, and then after I got out of that, I've worked in companies who have um, marketed technology to special operations command. And so what that means is you get to rub shoulders with a lot of interesting people. And one of the guys I was fortunate enough to meet was a um, when I when I met him he was on his way towards retiring and he was a master sergeant um, an army an army green beret and he told me this incredible story about um, in Iraq in 2007 where he was uh, in this in this ferocious battle with a cult called the Soldiers of Heaven and so. When he was walking me through that and, and everything that went on, I thought, man, that would be great for a book someday. And so he kind of took notes about it and asked him if I if if he minded if I took that and used it sometime. And he's like, yeah, no, 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 you know, feel free. I'd be honored to do it. And so that ended up becoming an, an integral part, um, not the same way. Like I said, I based it on something that really happened, but ended up becoming an integral part of um, this book and, in, like I said, under slightly different circumstances. And the two characters you're talking about are two Green Berets who are members of an ODA yeah. or Operational Detachment Alpha team. And so that's where those guys came from and kind of the idea behind them being in the book. I like them. I really like them. And well, I read that you. and I go, okay, I can't wait to figure out you know, where they fit in, which I think they did. So, I, I, this, yeah. is, this is the complaint everybody has about me. Like, how do you get? That's why the first set of questions, I mean, I actually read the book and understand it, people. Seriously? Um, why was he I chosen to that. do this? And what, Well, he went to Israel. What happens when he notices yeah. what happens? How come he goes to save somebody he doesn't even know? Yeah, so that's the great thing about Jack Ryan Jr. is that he's much yeah. like his father in that he he is absolutely somebody who is not content to sit there and watch a bad thing happen in front of them. And I think there are more of those people um, in the world than you realize. Many of them, there's, there's an old, um, there's a, 
uh, a book that was written by an Army lieutenant colonel um, that is kind of required reading for folks in law enforcement and other other um, professions like that that's called On Killing. And so as part of that book, he, he kind of has this thesis where he says there's basically two, there's three kinds of people. So there are wolves who are, who are the, you know, the, the gr- criminals or bad guys out there. There are sheep who the wolves prey upon, and then there are sheep dogs who protect the sheep. And so Jack Ryan Jr. is absolutely a sheep dog, and a sheep dog can't stand there and watch as a wolf a- attacks the sheep. And so... And that opening scene that you're talking about, it's certainly none of his yeah, like business that. or any of his fight, but that's just the person he is. He's not going to sit there and watch as somebody, as a wolf tries to harm a sheep in front of him. That's a good analogy. And he has very, very strong powers of perception. He sort of senses yeah. when something is wrong. And yeah. that's, that's, that's hard. A lot of people don't. Everybody tells me I'm too perceptive. I mean, I, I, I can, well, somebody can walk into a room and I either like you or hate you in 10 seconds, which is bad, but I'm usually right. <laughs> Very bad. He well, seems the same way. That's why I like Jack yeah. Ryan. I appreciate that, and I think that, again, is also very, very common in folks who are in law enforcement and folks who are in the special operations community and folks who are work in the intelligence community as um as people who run and recruit assets, they're usually called case officers because those people make their living, and, and not just make their living, but they sur- survive on being able to read the atmosphere around you, right? There's another great book um, when I was on the SWAT team that, that they had us read that was called The Gift of Fear. And kind of the thesis behind that book is that you are attuned at a very primal level to your surroundings. And when something doesn't feel right, it usually isn't mm-hmm. right, but we're, we've been mm-hmm. programmed because we're civilized to ignore that feeling, right? And, and to say, hey, there's something sketchy about this situation, but no, 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 I'm just, you know, I'm just making it up. I'm just, and, and so people who live that way for a, a living, they, they not only don't, don't ignore that, but they cultivate that, right? And you can, a lot of times you can see it, you know, when I was an FBI agent, and I traveled on planes, obviously, you know, I, FBI agents bring their weapons on planes, but you would look at everybody as they walked on the plane, right? And you're, what you're doing mm-hmm. is a quick assessment yeah. over whether this person's going to be trouble, whether they're not. And once you, you can also a lot of times figure out who the other people are like you, who are the other sheepdogs. Like I bet that person is an mm-hmm. air marshal just because of the way they're acting or or that the fact that they're hypervigilant too, right? And they're watching everybody else that does that. And so, there's some of it certainly that you play on or play up when you're writing a thriller novel, but it's very much based on real people, real perceptions, and folks who have to operate that way because if you don't, then you end up being the one who's who's attacked instead of the one who's defending the sheep. I, I agree with you. You know, it's funny because I taught for 36 years in a public school, and I was the dean mm-hmm. or whatever, and there were yep. parents that were came in, and I knew that they were uh, abusing their kids. You know, sure. you can just tell. Yep. And yep. and I yep. got in trouble so many times because I reported them, but the problem is that I was never wrong. That's what's even scarier. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we have yep. to. Yep. So there's a little yep. bit of Jack Ryan in you, Don. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so Hopefully there's a little Jack Ryan in all of us. <laughs> yeah. 
we have the shin bet, which I've heard of. So yep. why did why are they included? And they had technology that Israel didn't have, did they? Yes. Yeah, so that the, you didn't so have, that the United States didn't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Israel is, um, so over the past couple of years, about the last nine years, I've been very, very fortunate to have worked with a number of Israeli companies, and, and specifically Israeli companies that are, um, that were marketing technology to the U.S. military. And, and what's very, very interesting about, and, and because of that, I got to be friends with quite a few Israelis. And what's, what's very interesting about Israelis is that once they graduate from high school, everybody serves in the IDF. Everybody does. And so it gives everyone in Israel, where, where if you compare that to the United States, you know, it's an all-volunteer army, and less than like half of one percent of folks serve in the in, in the military. And so, everybody in Israel has a different take on, I think, the 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 enemies that surround them, life on a daily basis, because they they all at one point served in the military or not. And so, the Shin Bet is Israel's version, sort of, of the FBI. It's their internal security service. And when I was an FBI agent, there was actually a um, a rotation that you could do where you could go over and do a tour of duty, if you will, or, or short rotation with the shin bet and kind of be able to trade um, ways that they did things versus ways that you did things. And they're very, very effective for a number of different reasons. And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of get um, from, from, as you said, or as I said, the first part of the book is set in Israel. And I, and I thought it would be very, very interesting to have, um, Jack has to work a- alongside a another intelligence service with the big caveat of Israel is certainly one of our allies, but there are no true, you know, somebody a lot smarter than me once said there are no true allies among nations, there are only shared interests. And so what that means is even though Israel is a good friend to the U.S. and, and is the only democracy in the Middle East, at the end of the day, there may come times, and there have behind, and or have before in our in our history, where what's good for Israel and what's good for the United States, or or those shared interests might diverge sometimes. And so I thought that might be something fun to potentially explore in this book too. Is is what happens when you have allies, if if you will, who are on divergent paths, and Jack Ryan Jr. kind of gets caught in the middle of that. Yeah, he does. Poor thing. And now Israel had to shake up because not Netanyahu is no longer prime minister. People. Yeah. That. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they finally got yep. him out. What can I say? And he's he's pulling a. I didn't do it. It's their fault. Whatever. So who is Gavin? <laughs> he's interesting. And what are his skills? And Jack really depended on him a lot. I like this guy. Yeah. So Gavin is one of the campus um, legacy cat characters who is kind of there resident IT hacker computer scientist guy and so what what you see a, a lot of times in um in in one of the things that's made the United States so effective in when we transitioned from um what was before September 11th kind of a a cold war what was called a near peer fight to a counterterrorism fight is what we had to figure out how to do with how to to manhunt, how to go after individual terrorists, how to lock down um, folks who who are bad actors where you're literally hunting an individual instead of planning an operation against the nation state. And so 
there have been some great books on um, on on how the military made that transition, primarily within Special Operations Command, different organizations there. A lot of it in Iraq, where where what's called SIGINT or Signal Intelligence, the capabilities there got bumped up exponentially. In that, how do we look at the digital fit footprint that everybody leaves every day, whether you're carrying a phone, logging into the internet, doing anything like that, and use that to get actionable intelligence that you can then um, use to launch an operation? Because you can have you know the best assaulters in the world, the best, you know, Delta Force assaulters ready to go, you know, hit a target and snatch a bad guy, but if you don't have that actionable intelligence that says where they are, what their pattern of life is, what they're doing, those guys are just sitting there waiting for that target to develop. And so the way that the campus does that is through Gavin and folks like that. He's the one who takes the that raw data, that digital footprint that's out in the in the you know in the digital world. Okay, I've got him. And, and I can't see a thing without these things. And okay, so Jack is really good, but he he goes about solving a case that's so different than everybody else does. At least in this book, <laughs> he does. Yeah, he created that. Seriously, it's different because this is not Jack Ryan and the other. I read every Clancy book that was published, so what can I say? Sure, sure. I, I, think, I think, like I said, what, what I tried to do in this book is start from a place. Um, so my editor is, is Tom Colgan, and he's the editor for my series. I, I write a series of books that have a protagonist called Matt Drake. Um, the latest oh, one of those him. is The Outside Man. Thank you. And then... Tom is also the the editor for all the Clancy books. And so when he and I were talking about what this book would look like, because the way it works is you you come up with a kind of a synopsis that the Clancy Foundation approves, but Tom Colgan is kind Mm. of the guardrails for the series, where he understands the history behind them. He knows what's done before. And so he was telling me about a book that he and Mark Cameron had worked on in the Jack Ryan Senior Series where – where they started from is, is what would it be like because Jack Ryan Sr. is president and has a lot of advantages because of that. And so their thesis was what, what could we do where being president would be a detriment to Jack Ryan Sr.? What, what could we do where that would work against them? And so when he told me that, I was like, you know, that's a really interesting idea. What if we did something similar where – we put Jack Ryan Jr. in a position that he couldn't use the normal campus assets he normally did, and he couldn't call for help for all these legacy characters that he's done before. Mm. And what if we made it so that he had to rely just on his his own training and his own wits and what he could do in order to solve that problem? And so that's where Target acquired um, maybe what you're referencing was feels a little bit different than some of the other yeah, Jack Ryan Jr. books because of that, because what we set out to do was to to craft a story where Jack Ryan Jr. has nobody to, to rely on but himself. Well, actually what you did was you made the series more your type of series so that they can't compare yeah. it and say, well, in this book, this person did the same thing as you did. It's original. That's why. And I definitely got that right. So the only person that they talk about is Clark, right? 
and yep. he's from the campus. He's the only one that you talk about. And that 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 why did, you you picked him, of course, and of course I love Ding, and all the rest of yep. them. But he he was talking yep. to Clark. How come he got a, he did get in touch with him eventually? But that yeah. didn't matter. <laughs> well, he's it's it's always hard, I think, when you. Um, so John Clark is such an iconic character, and in fact. His, his origin story, though, Without Remorse novel, is still one of the most popular Tom Clancy books ever written. And so what you have to be careful with as a writer is when you bring one of these legacy characters on the stage, they can overwhelm your character, right? It can be the focus can be just on them. And so, like I said, I tried really hard to just keep it down to Jack Ryan Jr., but to stay within the confines of the series, there is, you know, John Clark is the director of operations for the campus. He's the one who is Jack Ryan Jr.'s boss, if you will. And so there comes a point in the story uh, a couple times, I guess two times, where there's kind of an inflection point. And I thought, you know, to be true to the series and to keep, mm. um, keep in line with all the great work that folks have done before me, this is a point where Jack Ryan Jr. needs to call back to his boss say here's what's going on and so those were the the points where he reached out to john clark kind of as you as you pointed out but it was not um normally or, or a lot of times john clark plays a much more active role or a bigger role in the book and and he didn't in this one i can't wait to see what you're going to do with this program next seriously <laughs> so Target Acquired has is a title. It has a couple of multiple meanings, right? And yeah. Why? Um, why? Why? Who is this person that they wanted to get? Because we didn't, you know, I didn't bring out too much about her in my this person in my review. Sure. Whatever I did, I tried. But yeah. why did they? What did? What was it? This is the second book where they wrote something yeah. like this. And how come yeah. you, did, you were able to figure it out? And I, I have to ask this really simple question. This is not a standalone, right? This is going to continue no. or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there will be another book in the series, too. Yep, sure. Um, so I, I think we, who you're talking about is um, Becca Schweigert, who is the, yeah, the person like that, that We didn't get Jack to know her too well. Yeah. No, not too much now, but that's the person that Jack meets in the beginning of the book. And what's really interesting about her is I came across this story of um, – of a number of universities in the United States where the FBI had done probes on them and realized that an, a bunch of them, either witting or unwittingly, um, had fallen under the influence of China, of communist China, and that either China was actively recruiting professors and funding them or through cutouts was funneling money to different departments, all in the name of transferring IP from the United States and transferring technology from the United States to China. And so this book um, definitely touches on that as well. And, and um, Becca Schweiger is a, is a scientist, and it's kind of caught in the middle of that. And so that's part of something that what Jack is trying to figure out is, is she witting? Is she unwitting? How much does she know about this? Mm. What's actually going on? But that's another one Whereas. You know, a writer for these books, the Clancy fan, Tom Clancy set such a high bar that nobody is ever going to be able to equal what he did. But one of the things he was 
he was so famous for was to be able to look at what's happening in current events and pull those into a, his book. And a lot of times he seemed to be able to beat the headlines, right? Like he would write something that, that happened yeah. before it actually played out on the world stage. And so for those of us who are lucky enough to write in his universe, that's what we're trying to do always too. It's not necessarily beat the headlines, but to add things that are actually happening in the world into these books. And so when I came across that article about the Chinese influence in American universities, I thought, man, that's something I have to add as well. Well, it's interesting that they have to approve it, though. If they don't approve it, you can't you can't write it. The Tom Clancy, uh, they they have to approve it, your plot. The same way Brian Freeman is writing Jason Bourne. They have to approve yeah, the rights also. And I, and I think that that is a very um, reasonable That's thing difficult. for them to do. It's it, yeah, but they're they're good partners to work with, and they've I think they've developed um, because they've worked with um, Tom Colgan and Putnam for so long. I think there's a lot of trust between the Clancy Foundation and the publisher because the publisher bends over backwards to stay true to the Tom Clancy universe, right? And so, and, and, yeah. and to the point where, like I said, my my editor Tom Colgan, there were you know, sometimes scenes in the book where when he wrote his editorial notes, he's like, hey, I want you to take another look at this because the way the way that you're portraying this particular scene or this thing is not, it just doesn't, um, doesn't ring true with what I've seen in Clancy before. So I want to, I want you to take another look at it because he is, he is very much the guardian of the Clancy universe and to make sure that what we're bringing to the table as, as writers still fits within you know, the initial scope that Tom laid out. And, and some of it, like like we said before, I write another series as well. And so yeah. what what I was very um, wanted to guard against, and certainly Tom did, that my protagonist is, is called Matt Drake in the other series, that it wasn't at times where Matt was bleeding over into Jack Ryan Jr. because Jack Ryan Jr. Mm. is iconic and is his own character and is something that Tom Clancy created. And so... We spent a lot of time making sure that what I wrote stayed true to that and stayed true to the vision that Tom Clancy had. Well, you know, the thing is that I used to think, because I read so many books, too many sometimes, Mm -hmm. that sometimes when they have somebody take a series, there's like old manuscripts or old plots that the author (laughs) wanted and never got to write. This is original because you get to pick it on your own. And yep, it's amazing right. how many people. I mean, it was Mark Greeny and Mike Mark Cameron yep. and a whole bunch of people. And Mike Madden, this yeah. The, this this one was the easiest one to read. Trust me. <laughs> I mean, I've read every single one of them, and some of them are 800 pages, and I got into 400 pages, and I go, <laughs> what did I do now? I need root canal. I mean, when the book is too, when the book is too long or too contrived or too whatever, I go like, help. And I didn't have to do that with this one. I have. I'm a well, speed I, reader, and my mom sent me for a speed reading. And I'm a reading person. Yeah. I have a reading license. Sure. And there's reasons why I understand things. So it took me like two and a half hours to read the book. Not bad. Wow. Wow. I took my time. Right. That's because that's because it's not large print. Otherwise, it would have taken me an hour and a half. So. Wow. Well, I, this. I how do you how do you create? That. You have the guys in the middle from the beginning, which I really like. Yep. You have Jack Ryan, you have the part of the campus, yep. you have this other thing. How do you create a story, a plot, with so many different plot lines that 
readers can follow each one of them. Because sometimes yeah. I get a story with 12 plot lines and I go help. <laughs> I have to take out the graphic yeah. organizer from when I taught reading. <laughs> so that's that is one of the hardest things to do as a writer because if you if you make well, first of all, I had a a really good friend of mine. His, his name's Sean Dixon, and he's also a great writer. He and I met um, when I was getting going back to grad school to get my um, master's in fine arts and in, in writing popular fiction, and so John. John had this saying that protagonists are supposed to fail forward. And so what that means is that when your protagonist is trying to solve the problem, they have a bias towards action, but there's always complications. There's always secondary or or tertiary things that they don't see, kind of like a domino effect, that as they're trying to work on one thing, another thing happens. And if you don't have enough of that, if you don't have enough of subplots or additional wrinkles, if you will, it won't sustain a book. You know, it's it's not big enough to do that. But to your point, if you have too many of them, then what that can do is dilute down the main storyline where you're jumping from point of view mm. to point of view so often you can't remember what you're doing. And so what I tried to do is um, have the – and I write organically, and so that that means I don't have a real clear plot when I start. I just keep trying to – raise the stakes for my protagonist and make and make him or her fail forward. And so as things get more complex, you start to think, is there a better way to be able to tell the story? Is there another viewpoint where I can show something that's happening that adds more attention to it? And so that was one of the considerations. The other one is when I got the opportunity to write this series, I went back and read a bunch of the original Tom Clancy books. Mm. And so I read Cardinal in the Kremlin and Clear and Present Danger. And I, and I had a notebook where I wrote down, because what I really wanted to do is go back to my first love, if you will, because Tom Clancy was, when I read Red Storm Rising as like a 13 or 14-year-old mm-hmm. kid, he's, that book is what made me fall in love with his genre. And so I wanted to go back to what I loved about his books and, and what made me become a lifelong reader in this genre long before I was ever a writer. And so I kind of took notes about the stuff Tom did. And so I tried to add as many of those as I could. And one of the things Tom, excuse me, was famous for was showing you alternate points of view from from um, people in the cockpit of an F-14 airplane or mm you know, something like that on the bridge of a submarine. And so I tried to incorporate as much of that as I could when it made sense. But you're also, to your point, there were times when I'm like, ah, I need to dial this back because I don't want to dilute from the main plot that's going on. And so the last, the climax in this book was was without a doubt the hardest thing I've ever written because I think at some point there are four or five different point of views all witnessing the same events and it was it was really really challenging for me as a writer and there was an entire sequence that I cut at one point because I thought I couldn't make it work and then and then I I put it back in and and kind of massaged it around to be able to do that because I really wanted to give the readers what I loved about Clancy and so but what that meant was it took me weeks to get the final you know 75 pages or something right because of that so I appreciate you saying um, that you like that because it was 
a tremendous amount of work on my part, and there were several times that I almost gave up and said, I'm not going to be able to pull this all together, but I'm glad you thought it worked. Trust me, I thought it worked. Like I said before, to be very honest, when I read something, it doesn't matter who writes it. It doesn't have to be New York Times. It could be anything. Um, sure. If I don't feel that I agree, not that I agree with the way it was written, but if it's not written in a way that people are going to want to read it or that I won't want to finish yep. it, then I don't do it. And I lately, um, yeah, I, I got a couple of books that I really said, I'm really, I, I just read one by, I won't say what the author does, but he used to stick to sure. his field, not writing. And the sad part is, is that I won't write a bad review. I just wrote a summary, and the, and the sure. publicist was thrilled. Sure. So what can I say? Sure. If it's superior writing, people, just send it to me. So now the other hard part is, and because I've read over twelve thousand books in the last ten years, for real. Wow. That's what they tell me. Wow. Yeah, I did. So why did you choose Syria, and why is everybody choosing that particular setting? How do you choose where the story takes place? Mm, so that's a good question. So I, I chose the the um, a lot of the beginning of it takes place in in Israel and in Tel Aviv in particular, and that's one of the amazing things about being a writer is you get to set the book um, wherever you want. And I just love Israel. I've I've gotten to visit a couple of times. I have a number of Israeli friends, and I really wanted to to show off the city of Tel Aviv because it's such an incredible place and the Israeli people are so warm and so very kind and so very mm. friendly to Americans. And so I did I did that for Israel. Now as far as Syria, as you mentioned, when a lot of times what you're looking for as a writer is a place with inherent conflict. So what what's mm-hmm. a place where there's enough craziness going on already that it doesn't stretch the credibility from a reader's perspective to say, hey, we're going to have a story that's set here and, um, and that incorporates aspects of it. And so Syria certainly fills that, that, that or checks that box, if you will, in between, you know, for, for a while there, you know, I think there were more than half a dozen armed um, factions all fighting for control of Syria at the same time to include major nation states like Russia, the United States, and then all the way down to like the Free Syrian Army and ISIS at one point. And so if you're looking for built in, a place that has built in conflict already, Mm. then then Syria is an excellent choice for that. Yeah, they worry me. I feel sorry for those people, seriously. Yeah. So yep. before I forget, and I have my list in front of me, this is the first time in the, in ever that I have three broadcasts every week in June. I don't do July ever, and August and September. I, I just can't mm-hmm. believe it. But I'm, yeah, a lot of people want <laughs> interviews. So tomorrow awesome. at 10, somebody we all know and love, John Gilstrap, Grimson Fields. Nice. Very and then nice. on 10th, David um, Richards, The Electric Kingdom. Mm. And next Monday, something I've never done before. This is a first. Motivational speaker, make your move. Uh, John Brigger, his, uh, the publicist that asked me to do it, his daughter is the publicist, pu- producer of The View. Mm. So he said, would I nice. do him a favor and do this one? I go like, uh-oh, okay. On the 16th, <laughs> somebody we all know and love, Brian Silverman, um, Yep. his book. And um, the next one, the 21st, is Ak Ak Girls with Chris Carlson. 
And to end the month, there's a few more in there. On the 29th, Tess Garrington and Gary Braver choose me. What a better way to end wow. the month than, yeah, she, uh, she's the yeah. very first author who I've ever interviewed because I emailed her myself. I was really brave to do that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, what can, I, what can I say? And on the 15th, I'm making up a broadcast that I didn't do last week, uh, the author of The Day Before I Died. Very sad book. Nice. But really interesting. So, now this is the key question. In every <laughs> book so far, Jack has either screwed up or had a relationship. So, is he going to have yep. a romantic relationship ever? He's had quite a few different <laughs> ones, let me tell you. <laughs> I think I think you so I think one of the keys to keeping a character relevant and a series relevant is that the character has to change over the course of the series, right? So if you yeah. so if you if you have a series if you have a book where it's just the next episode, you know, it's kind of like a TV show where you tune in at eight and the next episode happens. I think eventually readers want more than that. You want, I, I think one of the people who's the master at that is Daniel Silva with his Gabriel Alon series where when, when yeah. the book series starts, you know, Gabriel Alon is just this, you know, painter on the side of the hill in England and, and where, and now, you know, umpteen books later, He's married, he has two kids, and he's director of the Mossad. And so I think certainly um, Jack Ryan Jr. needs to, the, as a character, needs to change or think about different things or continue to grow as a character. Otherwise, I think readers will, will start to say, hey, it, this is feeling a little, a little episodic maybe. And so I, I, I will... I will say that it's our job as writers to do that while still staying within the confines of, of what the creator the creators of the series um, meant for it to do. So I know that's a little bit of a dodge, but that's that's mm. I guess what I what I can say on that. So I don't know if you realize I got it printed out this morning, just for fun. Sometimes I do these things. <laughs> I wanted to see what somebody else said about your book. And obviously, <laughs> Publishers Weekly loved it. Yeah, Absolutely that was a very kind it. review. Yeah. That was. They said, in the last sentence says, Bentley proves himself a worthy successor to Tom Clancy. Now that, yeah. considering it's that, Publishers I, Weekly, I go like, oh, my God. Because usually <laughs> the last sentence of a Kirkus review or their review says, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll, I'll be honest. That kind of that kind of took my breath away when I read that because you're yeah my again my my editor Tom Colgan was has been extremely kind and supportive throughout the entire process and he said look when we started this he said your your job is not to be Tom Clancy there's only one Tom Clancy your job is to write what you write write the same way that you write your Matt Drake books because that's mm -hmm. why I chose you but write it in the universe that Tom Clancy created having said that you know that you're going to get compared to Tom Clancy and rightfully so because he was oh, the yeah. master he was the one that invented this and so to have somebody a reviewer publishers weekly say that really just took my breath away I mean I was I may might have been dancing down the street for a little bit when I read that so that's you know, at the end of the day, one of my buddies is Joshua Hood, who writes in the Robert Ludlum series, and 
his analogy for being asked to take over that series is kind of like if you got, you know, tossed the keys to a Ferrari and mm. said, go take it for a spin. You want to drive that car as hard as you can drive it, but you also want to bring it back to the garage without any new dick, um, dings or, or nicks in it. And that's what I felt like it was being asked to write this series is I wanted to write a book that was worthy of it, but also bring, bring it back at the end with no, no new bumpers messed up or dings in the paint job. And so to have them say, have Publishers Weekly say that was, was amazing. It is amazing because usually after I post a review, I'm curious to know what other people thought. And I usually yep. disagree with most of them. I mean, I'm reading a New York Times author's book. I won't say who it is, and he's very well known. And I haven't—I just started it, so my—it's my, up in the air as what I think. And I'm saying he's got like 50% four and five, and most of them are three and one and two. I'm going mm-hmm. like sometimes when you create a new character, it doesn't work, yep. and sometimes when you create a character that belongs to someone else, it's even harder. Yep. What you had to do. Yep. Because people are going to say, yep. Kirkus hasn't reviewed the book yet, and if they did a panic, they're going to be in big trouble with me. No, seriously. <laughs> Sometimes I actually comment, and I go, are you seriously saying that? How could you think that? <laughs> and I also notice that a lot of times these uh, these very famous public you know, review places, they just reword the, last, the back cover of the book. They don't put anything original in. And I don't do that either. Sorry. So this is going to be ending. How did you create that ending that leaves us wondering what's next? Seriously. Well, I think I think when I, from my perspective, the two hardest parts to write in the book are the beginning and ending, or at least the time, the parts that I spend the most time editing and going over and going over and going over and so a lot of times <laughs> the beginning you spend more time on because it's still fresh and you want you know you want the um, readers to you want to grab them with something they haven't seen before and get them into the book and many times the ending because obviously it, it comes at the end of the book you're so mm. tired of writing it by then you just kind of like the end and you send it off and so that's really where you have a great editor mm. who grabs the book and says hey here's what you need to tie off in the ending here's what would make it better and Tom Colgan is a fantastic en- editor and so there were some things in the ending that I didn't have originally that he suggested and he said hey it'd be great if you touched on this and this and tied it back off again and so I did that, and the goal is, like what you said, in, in any ending, you want the reader to feel fulfilled, that you didn't cheat them, but you also want them to think, that was a great story, and I feel like the author did her or his job and, and tied off you know, most of the loose ends and the majority of the loose ends, but man, I want to know what they're going to do next. And so if you can, yeah. that's a really hard balance to to hit, because if you... If you skew it too far one way, then maybe people don't feel the need to buy the next book. And if you skew it too far the other way, maybe they feel like you've cheated them out of a satisfactory ending. But if you can hit that sweet spot where they feel feel fulfilled about the story but still curious about what happens next, then I think you've got something. And and hopefully that's what we did. And if and if I did hit it. Um, then, then a large part of that credit goes to, to Tom Colgan and his incredible um, story skills. You're lucky to have an editor like that. Seriously, 
I mean, how many yep. how many authors have I interviewed a lot? And sometimes yep. I, you know, this is a hard question. I mean, you're smart. You're listening to your editor. He's trying to get the book out so that yep. it's your writing, but his suggestions yep. are constructive, and he's not saying to you, you really did a rotten job, blah, blah, blah. Whereas yep. sometimes yep. a New York Times author will say to me, and there's one or two there, they, the way they write it is the way it's written. And they wouldn't. No yep. editor would dare to try to correct them. I mean, as far as grammar <laughs> and stuff like that, that's one thing. Yep. But there are several yep. that, if the editor tries to even think about, they switch publishing companies. I know that for a fact. Yep. Well, it's, it's, and, and it's scary. Really, and it's really interesting you say that because when again, Tom Colgan bought my first book without sanction, and so when when the editor is thinking about buying your book, you, they normally do a mm. call with the with the writer so that you can, mm-hmm. you can figure out what they're like. And, they, and so when he said he wanted to talk to me, I was really, really nervous. And one of my good friends is a writer named Nick Petrie who writes – his first book is called The Drifter, and he writes the Peter Ash series. And so I said to Nick, I'm like, what do I talk to this guy about? I mean, Tom Colgan's edited everybody from Tom Clancy to Janet Ivanovich and everybody in between. And so I was really, really nervous. And so Nick said, well, what you want to ask him about is what is his philosophy as an editor? I'm like, oh, that sounds really sophisticated. I'll ask him that. And so when I asked him that, Tom said, and he's very, very humble, and he said, look, I'm pretty good at this. I've been doing it a long time. And he said, but at mm. the end of the day, your book is your book. And he said, he mm. said the story that I like to tell is he said, I had an author, and I can't remember um, who it was, who he said, it's my only author who ever won this particular award. And and I wanted them to change their ending to the book, and the author held firm and said, nope, this is the ending, and it shouldn't be changed. And he said, okay, and it won, it won this award. And he said, you know, people say to me, well, you must be a pretty terrible author if you wanted to change that ending. And he said, no, I, or a terrible editor. And he said, no, I'm a great editor because I listen to my writer at the end of the day. And so mm. with Tom Colgan, it's always a conversation. It's always a uh, he has great story instincts and will give me comments, and, and 90, probably 95 or 99% of them I agree with, but if there's something I don't, we talk about it, and nine times out of ten, he's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do. Maybe here's a better way to do that, but you're right. That's the way it's supposed to be, and so it feels very much like a collaboration, but I'm mm-hmm. also very, very attentive to the fact that he is a superb editor who's been doing this for a long time, and he has great story instincts. And the one thing that he's trying to do is to make my book better. That's all he's trying to do. And so when he has suggestions about the endings and stuff, like I said, you know, nine times out of ten, I listen to what he has to say because uh, because I trust him and because we have that relationship. You know, I wish I had that for my last. I have my last. My new book is coming out June 26th, everybody. Population zero, nice. and I had three editors, and they just sort of edited um, grammar and stuff. And then one just said, "Take this out, put this in, whatever." They didn't give me any kind of construction of anything. Mm-hmm. And gotcha. yeah, and gotcha. the book the book has gotten some great publicity from pre you know five star reviews, mm-hmm. and it's different. Population zero, yep. a world without people. That's all I'll say about wow. that. And it, an editor like Tom is fantastic because I'm the type of person yep. that says, if this is not right, how do you want me to fix it? And I'll just fix it if I yep. think you're right. Yep. This way I had to do it myself. So sad. 
Yeah, so, yeah, that's a lot harder. A lot harder. <laughs> so, what is next for you? This book was about greed, power, control, benefits to one yep. nation to fund this, to fund programs, which I thought was cool, and fear. <laughs> so, what are you bringing back in the next one? And who are you bringing back in the next one? And I like, I like the little boy. Seriously. <laughs> Thank you. So the next book for me, like I said, because I write two series at the same time, the next, the book I'm working on right now is the third book in my Matt and Drake series, and it's called Hostile mm-hmm. Intent. And uh, that one is due um, to Tom on the 15th of July, and then I'll start working on the next Clancy one. And the, and the, the, the truthful answer is I'm not sure yet. Typically what we do is, Tom and I get together once I turn in the book before it, and we start spitballing ideas and stuff. And so there were a number of characters in this one that I really, really liked and want to. It's funny, when you're writing a character, you never know when you first bring them on the stage, at least for me, is is this going to be a character for a scene, for the entire book, or for multiple books? You really don't know that, and some of it, honestly depends on readers' feedback. So when you start seeing a trend among readers saying, hey, I really like this person, I really, these people were funny, this happened, you know, whatever, then you start thinking as a writer, hey, my job is to give readers what they want because that's, that's how they're going to keep coming back for more books and to start seeing which one of those characters you want to ch- carry forward to, uh, to the next one. So I'd be lying to you if I told you I had a master master plot for the next book right now. I'm, I'm really, really focused on finishing Hostile Intent. And then uh, about the 16th of, Ju- of July, I'll turn it in on the 15th and probably the 16th of July, Tom and I will sit down. And it's kind of nice from a timeline perspective because it's six weeks away, so we should have feedback. I'm one of the crazy reader or writers who actually read almost all my reviews, and so I'll be able to say to Tom, hey, here's what resonated with readers, here's the characters they liked or didn't, and we'll talk about where the book goes from there. Well, I'm really good at that. I've done that before. Um, you know who I really mm-hmm. like? I like the two. I like Carrie and Jab. I like the first two characters, <laughs> and, I like, and, I, and I like the guy from the Shin Bat. Really, is it? I uh, like that thank guy. you, thank you. You see, That's, I'm it's just... funny you say that. Of yeah, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was gonna say it's funny you say that about the two green berets because my my wife is my first reader and she loved them as well. And one of those, see? one of those, yeah. So so they they may you may see them again if other people feel the same way as you do because they were another they were characters I needed for to tell that part of the story, but they also seem to be characters that have resonated with the readers. So you might see them again. We'll see. See, your wife and I have great minds here. This is really true. <laughs> you know, it might be cool if Jack had to work with them together. That would be cool if the campus had to work with these guys to yep. see if they could solve some crazy international whatever. That's scary. And when do you, you think might the next be a little... book is coming back? And make sure I get it without asking. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So the next, so The Outside Man was book two, and that came out in March. And so book three, Hostile Intent, will come out in May of 2022. So we've got about a year for that, and then um, mm. hopefully my next Jack Ryan Jr. book will come out um, that summer, like June or July. So a little bit of time for me. I had two books come out this year within 
mm-hmm. two months apart, which is really, really crazy. And so now I'm, I'm going to have uh, about a year before the next Matt Drake comes out. But thank you for asking, friend, and I'll make sure you get a review copy. They better send me because I'll be very upset if I know. You know, it's really <laughs> how I get in trouble with you. I mean, I get in trouble. I'll look at something, and then Dick Belsky, who I love and adore, yeah. and his new book, Her Ocean Grave, is phenomenal, as Dana Perry. And, of course, everything yep. he writes is fantastic, too. Um, every time you promote something from Ocean View or Charles Salzburg, mm-hmm. who I love, or anybody promotes your book, and that's why I got yep. in trouble. I go, with my review copy? I, I do that constantly. <laughs> I don't do it for everyone. I just do it for one, and I go, no one's going to answer me, and it's... And the next thing I know is like somebody sent me a book by an author I had never heard of, and I'm going like, where did this one come from? And I'm going like, this is this is this is go-. yeah, because book mail hasn't been delivering, and I'm interviewing. I'm so honored. She doesn't interview with anyone except me. Iris Johansson, the bullet, on oh, August wow. 5th. She loves me because That'll I don't be ask questions about the story. I, I ask everything. I skirt the issue all the time, and this one is really. <laughs> She really outdid herself in, in this one, but everybody's writing books about um, things that happen. You know, this one has is about a, a cure that no mm-hmm. one wants because pharmaceutical companies don't want them. So, before yep. we end, where can we learn more about you and your book? And the other question is, do you do panel shows? Because I'm going to set one up in October with some very nice people. So, yes, I absolutely do panel shows and would love to be a part of one. Um, you can find oh, more about me at my, awesome. You can find more about me at, at my website, which is donbentleybooks.com, just D-O-N-B-E-N-T-L-E-Y books.com. Or I'm really uh, really active on Twitter and Facebook, and both of those it's at at Bentley Don B um, for both Twitter and Facebook. So either one of those, and I'd love to. For your listeners, if they want to learn more about the Tom Clancy books or my Matt Drake series, if they go to my website, they can sign up for my newsletter. And that's where I do giveaways, cover reveals, talking about the books, everything like that. Well, my cousin is called, beeped into me. She just texted me, when am I getting the book? I go, if I ever see you again, you might get it. And if I don't see you soon, someone else is going to get it. No, I have a friend that works in ENT analogy. And I ever so often she'll call me and she'll say, where is the Clancy book? What do you got for me in reading material? <laughs> it's, it's so it's amazing. I'm very popular because of my reading books. But I have to say that I was honored that 10 people in my building asked to read my book. I have no idea why, but they did. That's I had awesome. 80 copies of the book, and they're all gone, and I don't know what anybody thinks. And you know what? Whatever they think is what they think. But this has been fun. <laughs> I do panel shows. We talk about um, law enforcement how you use law enforcement in, in your books, how you create sure. your plot. We're doing, I'm doing one um, in September. We're going to talk about beginning, middle, and end. How do you create the middle of your plot so that I don't mm. fall asleep? That's a hard one. Yep. You know, I don't, I don't do normal, I don't do the regular things, but I will let you know. I'm going to probably do one in October. But thank you so much. It's really hot outside. And just thank God the air conditioner in this room is working. It's 84 degrees. I hope somebody, I wish somebody would turn the dial down. Thank you so much, everybody. And I don't know how everybody is still reacting, but I know when I go outside, I still wear a mask to, to protect me from whatever it is that's happening out there. Sure. Everybody stay safe. Don, stay safe. Thank you very much. Everybody have a great day, and bye.